Good morning, church. My name is Jeff Brookshire, and I'm the leadership development pastor here. And I want to share with you three stories today, three true stories about three kingdoms and three kings. The first kingdom I want to share with you today, his name was King Nebuchadnezzar, and he was king of the Babylonian Empire. Now, here's King Nebuchadnezzar. That is a name that caused me fits in seminary, spelling that. So finally, I had to come up with a way to do it. So I went, Nebu, Chad, Nezer. The only way I could remember how to spell that, I was talking to Pastor Rod after the first service. He said he did the exact same thing because that is not an easy name to spell. In fact, I felt sorry for this little child, Nebuchadnezzar, in kindergarten, having to write his name for the very first time. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, was in the kingdom of Babylon. And to give you a sense about where that is in the world map, it is in Iraq. Uh, that's where it was centered. The city of Babylon is about 50 miles south of Baghdad, Iraq. And King Nebuchadnezzar was a ruthless warrior. He was not just content with being the emperor, the king over Babylon there in Iraq, but he started conquering other lands and other people and other nations until he built this huge Babylonian empire. He was so powerful that he scared the Egyptians and the Assyrians in the north. So they teamed up with one another and they fought him in a battle called Carchemish. And there was two armies against one and yet King Nebuchadnezzar still routed them uh, mightily. Well, after he did that, he then turned his attention to Jerusalem. Because one of the things you need to know about King Nebuchadnezzar was that he was a worshiper of the false god Marduk. M-A-R-D-U-K, Marduk. And he was no friend of God. He was no friend of the Jews. So when he got to Jerusalem, he broke through the wall. He went into the temple that King Solomon had built. And he took all of the gold and the silver and the bronze items there that were used for the worship of God, and he took them to the temple of Marduk as a way of saying, Marduk is mightier than the Almighty God. Eventually, he would destroy the entire temple itself, just obliterate it. In the process, what he did was that he took the leading and prominent men and women of the country and he exiled them to Babylon. He ripped them away from their families and their homes, their homeland, and made them live in Babylon. And the reason that he did that is he wanted to make them citizens of Babylon. So what he did was is he made them learn the Babylonian language, learn the customs, learn the culture, uh, learn the history of Babylon. He made them wear Babylonian clothes, wear their hair the Babylonian way, which I do not know what that is eat Babylonian food. He made him do all of those things because he was trying to repatriate them. He's trying to make them to be citizens of Babylon. Three of the men that he um, exiled to Babylon was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I almost forgot his name. Three of those men were exiled there, and they had to make a decision, like all the other Jews that went there. Where was their primary allegiance going to lie? Where was their primary citizenship? Were they primarily citizens of Israel, where they had grown up, where their heart was, or were now they going to put their primary allegiance into Babylon, being citizens of Babylon? They had to make a choice. Well, a lot of the nations that were conquered, and some of the Jews 
made that choice by melting into the culture. They, they lived out that saying, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. They just melted into the culture. They, they became Babylonians. They acted like Babylonians. They forgot about their allegiance to Israel and to Almighty God. My question is, what would you have done? Now, it, it's easy for us to be here in the you know, land of the free and the home of the brave, to be in this place where it is safe to believe what you want to believe. But what would you really have done? I mean, think about it. Think about what it would have been like if, if Russia conquered us and they destroyed Washington, D.C., which some people think that'd be a good idea. <laughs> Destroy Washington, D.C., obliterate all of the churches, including crossroads, and then take you out of Georgia and take you to Moscow and say, you're never going back to the United States. Now you're going to live here as a Russian. What would you do? It's easy for us to say, well, I would stand up for God in that situation. But in this case, with Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, they could not just stand up for God without facing death. In fact, in Daniel chapter 3, we hear a story about King Nebuchadnezzar where he, um, he builds this huge idol. It is eight stories tall and nine feet wide. That's how huge it is, and it was gold. Now, scholars do not exactly know whether or not it was pure gold all the way through, solid gold all the way through. That would be a lot of gold and pretty heavy. So a lot of scholars say it was probably built out of wood in some way and then overlaid with gold. We don't know for sure. We also don't know for sure what the image was of. It just says an image of gold. It could have been um, Marduk, you know, an image of Marduk. It could have been an image of King Nebuchadnezzar because back then the kings felt like they were gods, you know, living here on earth. We don't know exactly, but this we do know was that King Nebuchadnezzar commanded that everyone in the kingdom bow down and worship this image of gold. In fact, one of his messengers, one of the heralds, as the Bible puts it, said this, nations, peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship him will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So it's not surprising that we then read in Daniel that all the nations of peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everyone bowed down and worshiped the idol. It was the popular thing to do. Everybody was doing it. It was the safe thing to do. It kept you from getting killed and being thrown into a blazing furnace. Everyone bowed down and worshiped that gold idol. Well, almost everyone. Daniel goes on and says, at this time some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the Babylonian names for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned them and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able, is able to deliver us in this matter. But even if he does not, I love that phrase, even if he does, even if God doesn't save us, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, I don't know about you, but if you really think about this, that took a lot of guts to say. That took a lot of courage to be able to stand up before this ruthless warrior, this mighty king, this guy who is already furious with rage, as the Bible says, and say, sorry, but I'm not going to follow you. Sorry, but I'm not going to bow down to your image. Sorry, but give me the blazing furnace. That took a lot of courage. They knew, though, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where their primary allegiance lie. They knew where their primary citizenship was. Their primary citizenship was in heaven. Friends, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, and if you've committed to following him as the leader of your life, then your primary citizenship is in heaven. The Bible says that we hold two citizenships. We have a dual citizenship. We are citizens of the United States, and we are citizens of heaven. As the Scripture says, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. So my question to you today is, where does your allegiance lie between the two? Where does your allegiance lie? I was thinking about this on a very superficial level, I'll be honest with you. And I was thinking about this, and I thought of Pastor Rod. Anytime I think superficially, I think of Pastor Rod. <laughs> and I was, I was thinking about the fact that in the world of sports, he has two allegiances. He is a citizen of two nations, the Iowa Hawkeyes and the Georgia Tech, what? Jackets. Jackets. Or Rambling Wrecker. You guys have an identity crisis going on. He is a citizen both, and I'm the same way. I am both a Purdue Boilermaker and a Duke Blue Devil because I went to both schools. And I love basketball. I come from Indiana. That's where I grew up. And basketball reigns there in high school and in college. And, and so uh, my wife, Jill, can tell you that during basketball season, the DVR gets set for when Purdue and Duke are playing on the TV. I'm watching that. And I always set it DVR because you can watch it in an hour instead of two hours and skip all the commercials. Time out. Well, they don't ever really play one another except they did in 2010. They were in the NCAA men's basketball tourney 
and they both were in the same side of the bracket, and they won their games, and they ended up meeting one another, and I had to make a decision. My Duke friends were calling me. My Purdue fans were calling me. Who are you going to root for? Who do you want to win this game? And I knew the answer was easy. It just came easily to me. I am a Purdue Boilermaker first and foremost. Duke is right there behind, but I am a Purdue Boilermaker first and foremost. Now, they went on to lose that game by 13 points, and Duke went on to win the national championship, which I was happy about. But the truth of the matter is, is for me, it's Purdue first, Duke second. Where does your primary allegiance lie? For Christians, being a citizen of heaven says that our primary citizenship is in heaven. Our American citizenship is secondary. Now, let me be very clear about this. I'm not saying that I'm not proud to be an American. I am. I am so thankful, and I thank God that I was born into this great country and get to live here. And I'm not saying that I didn't take the Pledge of Allegiance or don't sing the national anthem. I do. And I'm not saying that they're mutually exclusive, that you can't be an American and a Christian at the same time. You can. But we must understand that as we live as dual citizens, citizens of the United States and citizens in heaven, that heaven must always come first. That if we ever come face to face with the fact that our United States citizenship is telling us to go against our heaven citizenship, we must always choose heaven. Always choose heaven. God first and everything second. When I moved down here uh, to Georgia, one of the things that I noticed here that was different than Indiana, at least I'd never seen it up there, was a phrase that I was seeing on trucks or on t-shirts and so forth. And the phrase was, God, country, and guns. Anybody ever seen that? God, country, and guns. I, I, Indiana just isn't up to speed. But you know what? They're right. God comes first. God first, then country. God first, then guns. God first, then everything else. God comes first. So what is it, practically, that we are to do as good and faithful citizens? How do we live as good and faithful citizens in this country? Well, the first thing that we do is citizens of heaven pray for their governmental leaders. They pray. The Apostle Paul wrote, I urge then, first of all, that petitions which is a type of prayer, prayers, intercession, which is a type of prayer, and thanksgiving, which is a type of prayer, be made for all people. And then he puts in this little phrase, for kings and all those authority, just to make sure that we got it. Pray for all people, including those in authority, including the politicians, including the kings, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now what's interesting to me about this is another kingdom. By this time, it was around 60 years after Jesus was born. At this particular time, the Babylonian Empire was long and gone. Nebuchadnezzar was dead in the ground. And now the ruling empire was the Roman Empire that ruled over the par that part of the modern world. 
And the Caesar of the Roman Empire at that time was a guy by the name of Nero. Nero was also a ruthless leader. In fact, he even had his mother executed, which must have been very awkward for him at the next Mother's Day that showed up. <laughs> he even had his mother executed. And he was all about himself. So one of the things that he wanted to do was he wanted to build this huge palace for himself in Rome. But the problem was, was that there were homes and there were businesses where he wanted to build his palace. So he made it very clear that he was going to steal these homes. He was going to take these homes and these businesses. He was going to demolish them. And then he was going to build his huge palace. Well, in 60 AD, a great fire broke out in Rome. And some scholars say it destroyed up to 70% of Rome. So the rumors got started, and it spread like wildfire, no pun intended, throughout the, throughout the Roman Empire that Nero was the one who started the fire. That Nero started the fire because he wanted to clear out the land so he could build his palace. So everybody was talking about how Nero had done this and Nero had done that, and they were accusing him of, of starting the fire, whether rightly or wrongly. So Nero realized he had a public relations problem. So he needed to blame somebody else. And this is what the Roman historian Tacitus, not Christian historian, but Roman historian said. To get rid of the report, the rumor, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Accordingly, arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, but as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. The Christians were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Now, I don't know about you, but that stuff just makes my skin crawl to think about our brothers and sisters in Christ who were thrown into arena and these wild dogs were unleashed upon them and they were ripped apart until they died. It makes my skin crawl to think about them being crucified like our Lord or being tied to a stake and lit on fire just so that they could have light at night. It's a terrible time for Christians. And it's exactly during this time that Paul writes to Timothy and says, pray, pray for the kings and those who are in authority. Pray for them. Now, if I was a Christian at that time, I'd say, you bet I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray, God, please kill Nero and let it burn in hell. That's what I'd want to pray, but that's not what he wants us to pray. Listen to what he said. He said that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He wanted them to pray for Nero's salvation. He wanted them to pray for this demon of a man who's persecuting the Christians in the Christian church. Friend, we are called to pray for our leaders. First and foremost, 
we are to get on our knees and pray. Our first step is not to make a sign and go get in a march and march around with our sign. You can do that if you feel called to do that, but that's not where you start. You start on your knees. You can write something on Facebook. I don't recommend it. But you can write something on Facebook about your political beliefs. You can write all this stuff about whatever you want to do. But you don't start there. You start on your knees. It starts with an attitude of prayer, of praying to God for our leaders. So what I'm saying to you right now is, is that if you are not a Democrat, you are to pray for Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. If you are not a Republican, you are to pray for President Trump, Paul Ryan, and Mitch McConnell. If you are not a liberal, you are to pray for liberals. If you are not a conservative, you are to pray for conservative. That's where it starts, church. That's what we're called to do, is to get on our knees and pray for our governmental leaders. So what do we pray, practically? How do we pray for our governmental leaders? Because some of you are thinking, he just mentioned some names. I have no idea how to pray for them. I was watching the news a little bit this morning, and one of these people came up, and I thought, oh man, God, you are so cruel. (laughs) Making me pray for them right now, because I have to, because I'm preaching the message. How do you pray for them? Well, the first thing you do is you pray that they know Jesus. And if not, that they will be saved. You pray for their salvation, just like the Christians of Paul's day prayed for Nero. Secondly, you pray that they will hear God and will listen to godly advisors, that they'll be surrounded by godly advisors. Pray that they'll hear what God is saying to them, what his will is. And then thirdly, you pray that the leaders will obey God completely because you don't want them to just hear what God's will is. You want them to put it into practice, right? So pray that the leaders will obey God completely, not being swayed by their political party or public opinion or power or prestige or perks, but instead that they will be swayed by the voice of Almighty God. Christians start on their knees and they pray for the governmental leaders. And then secondly, good and faithful citizens speak the truth in love and act on that truth. Sometime before Jesus uh, would go to Jerusalem where he would be arrested and, and beaten, where he would be put on the cross and crucified and die on the third day, rise again from the dead. Jesus, sometime before that, was with his disciples, his 12 disciples, and he was telling them what was going to happen. He told them beforehand. He told them he's going to be arrested. He told them he was going to be crucified. He told them that he was going to die and rise again from the dead. And Peter heard this, one of the disciples. Peter heard this, and he was furious. He heard all the arrest and death and crucify and, and, and all that stuff. He didn't hear the resurrecting from the dead part. He just heard the front part of it. And so he pulls Jesus aside. And the Bible says that he does something that's rather harsh. The Bible uses the word rebuke. 
he rebuked Jesus. This is what he said. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Hey, did you hear that? You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I don't know about you, but that describes me a lot of the time. I've got all these worries and all this stuff going on in my head, in my life, about human concerns. And I don't always have the concerns of God in my life. Anybody else is like that too? Yeah. Yeah. As good and faithful citizens, our role is to speak the truth. Now, like Jesus speaking to Peter, sometimes that truth doesn't come out in a warm and fuzzy kind of way. It's not a warm and fuzzy kind of love, but it always comes from love. Every time Jesus speaks, it always comes to love, and he calls us to do the same. Jesus spoke plainly. Sometimes he spoke sharply like he did here, but it always came from a place of love because he loved Peter too much to let Peter believe something that was not true. So the Bible calls us over and over and over again, speak up. Christians. Speak up. Speak up about the causes of justice. Because over and over and over again in the Bible, God is described as a God of justice and that he loves justice. So we are called to speak up and promote the causes of justice. Speak up. Speak up about providing for the poor and the destitute and the outcast. Because over and over and over again in the Scriptures, you read it for yourself, you will see that God describes himself as one who is defending the cause of the widow, defending the cause of the orphan, defending the cause of the poor, defending the cause of the destitute and the outcast. God is wanting his church to do the same. The truth of the matter is, is that it's the church's responsibility to care for the poor, not the government. The government took it over because... We weren't doing a good job. Friends, it's our responsibility to promote the causes of the poor and the destitute and the outcast. Speak up, speak up, and give the life-giving, life-changing, life-empowering message of Jesus Christ. Tell them, tell them that doing a bunch of good deeds is not going to get them into heaven. Tell them that just because they're a good person isn't going to mean they're making it to heaven. Tell them that just because they're religious doesn't mean they're going to go to heaven. Tell them the truth that there is a way to go to heaven and his name is Jesus. And Jesus can save them from their sins by just asking him to forgive them. That Jesus can lead them into life in all of his fullness before death and lead them to eternal life after death. Tell them. The Apostle Paul wrote it this way. He said, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? That's an excellent question. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they pray to Jesus if they don't believe in him? And then Paul says, how can they believe in the one of whom they have heard if they haven't heard 
I, I didn't say that right, but you got what I mean. How can they... How can they believe if they've never heard about Jesus? And how can they hear without somebody preaching or telling them about Jesus? How can they? And he says, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I don't care how nasty your feet are. If you bring the good news, your feet are beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. Absolutely beautiful. We are citizens of heaven, and our primary allegiance is there. And so what I'm saying to you today is, if you have never made Jesus the king of your life, if you've never asked him to be your savior and to follow him as Lord, I encourage you to make that pledge of allegiance today because I'll tell you, if you do that, he will save you from the fires of hell just like he saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fires of the blazing furnace. Come to Jesus today and make that pledge of allegiance. And those of you who are Christians, listen up. If you have made the concerns of humans higher than the concerns of God, if you've gotten off the path of watching him as the leader and following him as leader and Lord of your life, I encourage you to make a pledge of allegiance today to recommit your life to making Jesus your king and heaven your primary allegiance. Today I've written a pledge of allegiance. I'm going to read through it, and then if you feel comfortable, seriously, if you can sincerely and honestly say this, I'm going to invite you to stand with me and make this pledge. So here's how the pledge goes. I pledge allegiance to my God, the Father, Spirit, and the Son, and to his kingdom in which I am, one servant, under God, immovable, with liberty to serve him above all. Amen. If you can make that commitment, please stand. Face the cross. Place your hand over your heart. And let's make this pledge. I pledge allegiance to my God, the Father, Spirit, and the Son, and to his kingdom in which I am, one servant under God, immovable, with liberty to serve him above all. Amen. Lord God, I thank you for those who have made that commitment today. I thank you, Lord, for the commitment that you have placed in our hearts to make you the king of our lives, to make you the one that we are primary allegiant to. And I pray, Almighty God, that as we have made this commitment today, that you will give us the strength from your Holy Spirit, that you will empower us to live out the commitment that we have made. I thank you for those who have made the commitment for the very first time. I thank you for those who have recommitted their lives. And I pray, Lord, that you will bless them, that you will just this week and today just pour out your blessings on them. And Lord, I pray that you would make us all ones who live for your glory, that you would receive all the praise and the honor and the glory now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.